Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Four, three, two, one. I told you before to be careful where you put your legs. I was only trying to be helpful. I can help myself. What are you waiting for? Come on. Come on. What are you waiting for? Come on! Come on! For seven decades, Michael Keane has been among the world's most renowned and recognisable actors. It was just what I needed. A one-inch god with a two-inch penis. The star of classics like Zulu, The Man Who Will Be King, and The Cider House Rules. It's a miracle no one was killed. But also films that brought his career to the brink of complete implosion. I made a mistake. Somehow, he has always found a way back. You're a big man, but you're in bad shape. With me, it's a full-time job. In this epic podcast series, we will watch and review every Michael Caine movie, from the greatest hits... You're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off! ...to the incredible misses... You've failed to maintain your weapon, son. ...and take a deep dive into the life and work of one of the world's most recognisable film stars. His name is Michael Caine, and no one will forget his name. ...to understand how he has made... The Mark of Cain. Well, you all settled in? Right, we can begin. For God's sake, come in! Hello and welcome to another Mark of Cain, our long-haul flight through the films of Michael Cain, watching every single one, no matter what. My name is Michael Foley and I'm joined, as always, by Stephen Black. So last time around, Stephen, we had the swarm. But you know what? It should have, like, I kind of feel like I should be kind of reeling and either exhilarated or something. I should be feeling something. But I'm just numb. I think we're just so punch drunk by now from this whole project. Does it Does it even register what's going on? What's going no, on? No, I think if you say that as you before, I'm pretty much, you know, I'm pretty much numb down there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's no yeah. feeling anymore. It's just, no. it's, it's not there. It was, and now it's not. Yeah, we were, God, we were different people before we started this. Anyway, I think today, right, so we had The Swarm the last day, which, of course, you know, terrible movie, terrible performance, etc., etc. by our man. I think today's movie is yet another effort by Kane to wash the old mouth out, get a good old gargle on, try and sort of, um, try and sort of redeem himself, at least when he looks at himself in the mirror anyway, whatever about anybody else, in the eyes of anybody yep. else. Yeah, for sure. I mean, he's... <laughs> Appears to have made an effort in terms of trying to uh, get somebody with a good track record. Mm-hmm. Not so much the director, but more so uh, Neil Simon, somebody who's an established and fated um, play. I was about to say playwright, but the, it's playwright, isn't it? You can say both words, or both words are, are, are equally accessible, aren't they? I'm not going to step in your way. All I would talk say, writer. A talk writer. All I, all I would say, scenist, scenist, scenist. My good lord. Yeah, he certainly like you know. It's it's Neil Simon. This is California Sweet, by the way. And yeah, Neil Simon, you know, most nominated writer, scenist, whatever you want to call him, across Oscars and Tonys when you put them all together. So yeah, he's. You say about the director. In fairness, right? This Herbert Ross directs California Sweet. Now we should probably get into this kind of dull detail by the time we've got the, the audience reeled in but just what you say you're not you're not impressed with him right but to be fair to the lad he directed Goodbye Mr Chips he directed Play It Again Sam which is one of my favourite Woody Allen films he directed Footloose he directed Steel Magnolias he directed Secret of My Success the old Mighty J Fox thing 
and he directed a couple of Barbra Streisand movies. He directed The Owl and the Putty Cat. The Putty Cat? The Putty Cat? I thought I thought Putty Cat. The Owl and the Putty Cat. The Owl and the Putty Cat. He did, he did. Direct The Owl and the Putty Cat. And he directed Funny Girl. But anyway, um, so yeah. He Jesus. Didn't, he didn't have a bad record. I mean, it's, there's plenty more. Uh, yeah, he's unremarkable gun for hire is what he is. There's no, you know, you know, like, would we call him an author or whatever it is? You never... It's yeah. just, yeah, it's it's just meat to veg direction. Well, as far as, I mean, I, you know, people may be getting the impression now and getting the sense that California's sweet for us was kind of one experience, right? But for the people in 1978, it was a slightly different experience. This is critically acclaimed. It did very, very well at the box office. Kane, again, in the proximity of an Oscar. Maggie Smith, he's kind of co-star in this. One best supporting actress for her performance here. Um... This was he got really, nominated really, for Golden Globe or something, didn't he? He got he got nominated for something. I, I don't know was it a Golden Globe. I stand to be corrected. Just who there cares? Nobody's going to look this up. We'll say it's a Golden Globe. Okay, all right. He got nominated for loads of stuff. She yeah. won a Golden Globe as well, Maggie Smith. She was nominated for a BAFTA. That's for sure. And Neil Simon got nominated for an Oscar for his screenwriting. This is one that, like, you know, when they talk about the Kane spiral, this is one that is deemed to have pulled him up and out of the spiral. But does it? Does it pull him up out of a spiral? Well, compared to what came before, I suppose it has to, doesn't it? That's wrong. I, I think we're probably putting the cart before the horse issue. We're not to the usual kind of people are expecting a format uh, here. Probably, they're expecting. Probably. They're getting. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're getting, getting Etsy now. They go, but no, no, no. Yes. No, you're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. Actually, we should just get straight into this. You're absolutely right. There are some interesting bits and pieces around this movie. The timing of making the movie for Kane and indeed his re gayification in this role. Of course, we spoke about de-gayification before. Now we're re-gayifying. This is after years spent selling himself as a wildly heterosexual man on film. To some interesting people involved. Neil Simon at the typewriter. Pulling together four stories based out of the Beverly Hills Hotel. It's part people talking at each other. It's part terrible slapstick. There's an Oscar-winning performance in the middle of it all. This is the definition of a mixed bag that is California sweet. Nothing could be more glamorous more exciting or more expensive than a weekend at the fabulous Beverly Hills Hotel in Neil Simon's California Suite because you never know who you're going to run into. Happy birthday from your brother, Harry. My birthday isn't until next month. Tequila, I'm in no hurry. Hello, Bill. Hello, Anna. I love your California clothes. They're Bloomingdale's in New York. It's the best place for California clothes. May I help you, ma'am? Marvin Michaels and Mrs. Marvin Michaels. Oh, he's on the phone now. He's here. My wife. My wife is here. Now, there's four of us, and we need two rooms. I don't have two rooms available. I'm sorry. It's Academy Award week. Channel 2 just picked you as a dark horse. They must have seen the dress. That's not funny, Sydney. Marvin? Marvin? Yeah, sweet California, sweet. Uh, where do you want to go with this? What do you want to do? Uh, like, I guess it's it's a portmanteau, isn't that what they call it? Uh, when there's like a rake of stories yes, in it, but no, they, none of them really, uh, none of them really inter- uh, intertwine. So yes. a bit like, let's say, like some Pulp Fiction, except there's no real mixing and matching between the, the stories yeah. and there's, there's no overarching kind of theme or anything like that. So I guess 
we probably focus on Kane's story because that's why we're watching the fucking thing. Yeah. And then kind of briefly reference the flim flam that's going on in the backwards. And, and backwards. Flim- that's going on in the backwards. That's going on in the backwards. <laughs> that's going on in the backwards. The flam flim that's going on in the front way sideways. Yeah. And yeah. It, it is, it is a, yeah, it's, it's, it's a mix and gather of this. This is a Neil Simon thing. The movie California Sweet was kind of based roughly on an idea on a, of, of a concept that he, he did before with a, play called Plaza Suite which was really really well received back in the late 60s and he made a movie out of it in 71 basically four one act plays performed in one room in this in the case of California Suite it's four stories and the only common denominator is the is the hotel really the Beverly the hotel hotel. is barely barely a character it's barely yeah yeah it's just the fact that they're in a hotel that's that's about it um yeah, well, I just run through the plot very briefly for the sake go of on, what you, it is. Go on, yeah, yeah, go on. So, like, so as the four intertwining stories, as Stephen said, we're going to focus on on Kane playing opposite Maggie Smith. They play a married couple. He, a bisexual antiques dealer, uh, spending more time probably on the homosexual side of that deal than the heterosexual. It seems anyway, and she's an Oscar nominated actress who's in Hollywood for the Academy Awards. They've come in from London. He seems very sweet and charming, but there's a tension there between her and him that's caused largely by his sexuality and her need for like his absolute love and devotion despite his various affairs and so on. So she gets wildly drunk. She doesn't win the Oscar. They say some cruel things, but they reconcile and they depart kind of more or less back where they started on a kind of delicate emotional balance between their own relationship and Kane's, Kane's character's other life. The other story, uh, Jane Fonda and Alan Alda, they get the ball rolling actually in the movie as a separated couple with a daughter who wants to spend time in LA with her dad, not with her hard, yeah, I know, I know, hard-bitten journalist mom. Fonda's all sharp one-liners and cattiness and Alda's kind of pure bean sprout LA or alfalfa sprout LA. Fucking Topher Grace, Topher Grace in that 70s show. Like. Yeah, exactly, doing the five-mile runs in the morning and looking 10 years younger than any 44-year-old New Yorker should. So they're bitching away. The kid ends up staying in LA with Alda. The kid actually turns out to be Kimberly from Different Strokes, Dana Plato, who had a very, very tragic life. Well, you want to look up her story. She died in her 30s. Very, very, sad. very, very sad indeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there you go. Um, so that kind of more or less that one. Um, Richard Pryor and Bill Cosby is just, I don't I really don't want to talk about this one for very for very long for all sorts of reasons. They play a pair of wealthy doctors on holidays with their wives. It's just slapstick from start to finish. It's awful. Ends up so many accidents happen to them all that they end up leaving the place wheelchair bound and bandaged as they head home for Chicago. It's a really low point. Um, anytime they're on screen, actually, that group, it's just dreadful. And the fourth story is Walter Matthau uh, in Los Angeles for his nephew's bar mitzvah. Yeah. His sleazeball brother, actually, before you zzz again, uh, played by Herb Edelman, who also plays Stan, Dorothy's ex-husband in The Golden Girls. So, you know, kind of career sleazeball uh, sets Jesus up Christ how old are you I'm old I, enough I can, to he, I can hear pe- I, can, I can actually hear people switching the podcast off like. <laughs> he referenced Stan in the Golden Girls that's yeah. it and different strokes what can I say uh, anyway so Watermata was brother sets him up with a hooker hooker doesn't wake up in the morning wife arrives farcical hijinks ensue wife forgives him and just goes buys tons of stuff whatever like like all these pieces like the stories are so paper thin it's so dependent on the performances and again the movie overall, i don't think so you could you have so? like no i don't i think you could have the roles rice of actor and actresses in these roles and it wouldn't you can't make a fucking uh, purse out of a sow's ear like the richard Pryor bill cosby piece is you've got two of the most famous and 
whatever you think about uh, Bill Cosby, and we'll talk more about that later. One of the two most influential stand-up uh, comedians of their t- of their time, mm-hmm. and you decide to give them roles that predominantly require them to fall over things yeah. uh, ineptly. It's 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 almost unforgivable. Like Richard Pryor, Richard Pryor has limited enough screen time where he's actually able to, you know, act yeah. without being completely and utterly kind of. Uh, uh, inhibited by well, by other other factors in his life, let's put it that way. Well, hit over the head by a tennis racket, or thrown into a television, or you or know, f- falling over a tennis a uh, tennis net, tennis net. Uh, this it's kind of silliness, bullshit. Yeah, just utter bullshit, and, and such a complete utter waste. It kind of reminded me of the wrong box where you had the back in the sixties where you had this catalog of the cream of uh, mostly you know, Tony mm-hmm. Hancock is like the, the the cream of uh, English comedic talent, and they're just wasted. Complete no good waste. material. Yeah. It's just um, the the Matto thing is just why? How is this entertaining on stage? I mean, I don't even again. This is again one of my most hated things. It's a play that's been adapted. Yeah, I assume that you without, assumed... with with no scope whatsoever. It just looks again. Why bother? I assumed all right when I was watching the movie, going, "Well, Stephen's not going to be enjoying this. This is basically theater no. on screen." The score just drops out. And it's just dead air is left as they as they just. Cattily go go back and forth, and the dialogue is fucking terrible. The dialogue is this. I can't understand how how Neil Simon was so fated for this. The dialogue is so clunky. Well, in it attempts, and I don't know if it's down to the delivery, uh, uh, but I don't really think so. I just think like fucking uh, Jane Fonda and Alan Aldous is probably the worst out of the whole thing. This kind of catty back and forth, but the jokes don't land, and the bitterness and the the you know the. It just doesn't work. Well, I, I think, think she refers like this to give you an example, dear listener, of the of the the wit here. She refers to Laurel Canyon as Hardy Canyon. For you see, Laurel and Hardy were a popular duo <laughs> in the nineteen thirties and forties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 bleak. I think, you know, look, Neil Simon, the odd couple. Look, there's no questioning the man's talent as a writer, and you know that's not really what we're even here to talk about anyway. But yeah. there seems to have been a common thread when you read criticism of neil simon down the years there's a common thread that and it is that situation where when it's written down on a page or when it's performed in theater these lines and these things might might spark in a different way but when you're doing it it doesn't sound number one it doesn't sound natural it doesn't sound natural on screen and also on in movies and on tv you need more space and air for things to kind of just hit to land you know it's too verbal and the the alda Fonda coupling is 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 the ultimate example of this in this movie. Like they're constantly sniping back and forth at each other about 20 and, and basically dominates the first 30, 40 minutes of the movie. After about 20 minutes, I'd zoned out. I, I'd sort of like going, yeah, look, they're engaging because it's Alan Alda and Jane Fonda and they're good at this. But it's just too much. She's meant to be a sort of a, a hard-boiled journalist with a sort of a soft center, though, because she's terrified she's going to lose the affections of her daughter if the daughter goes and lives with the father for too long. If you'd just been given a bit of space for that to come out, it would have worked. But as I say, it's a criticism of the Simon works for his career that the lines and the jokes are often good, whether they're good or not. And this is another day's work. But, but even if they are good, they're being asked to carry too much weight in terms of the story. And the whole thing just collapses down on itself because you're just boggled. Like you're kind of going, no, nah, that doesn't sound natural. No, nah. you wouldn't say that back and forth in a conversation, which is why I think the Kane and Maggie Smith one is the best because they make the best effort to try and prize out some air and give each other a bit of space to actually act. I mean, yeah, 
No. There's only so much. You, no, there's only so much. There's only so. I think anyway. Uh, there's only so much you could do with it, and you look at that storyline and you think, okay, in 1978, he's playing a, a, a more or less closeted uh, yeah. gay man. It's a, it's like they almost had to capitulate to some sort of standards uh, committee by going, oh no, he's bisexual. You know, to try yeah. and get away from the whole. It's because it's it's completely debated that there that he is on, as you say, he's on the left hand side of the menu rather than the right. You know. Totally and utterly. In fact, we should probably just start there on the Cain performance. So just to remind people very briefly, right, remind people of this, of this theory. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a well-regarded theory, I think, at this stage, the de-gayification of Michael Caine in the 60s. But now we have the re-gayification. So can you, can you explain to our listeners the de-gayification? Uh, de-gayification started with his career, started out the producers of uh, the Ip Chris Fire were concerned that he was not masculine enough. So they made a number of changes to his character and how he behaved in order to ensure that he would come across as a red-blooded male. And it kind mm-hmm. of followed him for a few films after that. Alfie also taking that role, an ultra-masculine misogynist role, helped kind of cement his reputation as a more masculine actor. Um, it was the way that he used his hands on screen was uh, was an issue for a producer at the time. So we're more than a decade on. It's 1978. Uh, I mean, obviously, in this movie, we're in an, unlighted time, an, an enlightened time where a family of African-Americans can check into the Beverly Suite, can be involved in a car accident and not, uh, and talk to mm-hmm. the police without the police shooting and killing them. So this is some <laughs> sort of parallel fucking universe. It really you is know? odd, yeah. So we in this parallel know. universe, he's able to be out it, out yeah. a little bit, you yeah. know, uh, in terms of him um, chatting up uh, a fella at the, at the Oscars. And in terms of him trying to do better than, uh, than he did in The Swarm, this is certainly outside of that comfort zone. It's not, you know, like jack action. You know, yeah. it's more, you think it's more nuanced, but then when you kind of think about it a bit more, the story actually doesn't really, it doesn't really, like, I mean, how old is the story of woman is married to gay man, they have a marriage of convenience. I mean, this is, you know, a centuries old fucking story. So he's not, re- he's not rewriting the, the, the Bible here, you know, it's, there's nothing, there's nothing new here. And the way, uh, the way that the themes are discussed are so kind of, teasing at the edge of it rather than actually yeah, discussing it, which you would it. imagine. It's it's hard to take seriously a married couple's discussion about something like that when it is so obvious that they are actually limited by the morals of the time and what they can actually say, which yeah. makes it even more unnatural the way that they're talking. So no married couple in that situation would be talking the way they're doing, but because of the issues with the homosexuality at the time, they can't actually get, in, uh, get into any detail about it. Yeah. And like it is a big, I mean, it's a jump for Kane to do this, but I think it's, I get oh, this. Oh, wait, wait till you see him in the, uh, uh, was it Dressed to Kill? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, we're on a road now. Like, I mean, yeah. he, 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 um, he has spoken about it down the years, you know, keeping in mind like that, you know, he came from a background where his father thought he was gay as soon as he said he was going to be an actor. So, I mean, this is, you know, to get to this point and go, okay, I'm going to take on this role. He spoke about it in the Daily Mirror in 1979. He said it was, quite a difficult role he said but fascinating i really don't know what it will do to my image the homosexuals would probably say i always knew he was one and the heterosexuals will say i always wondered about him so even at that like there's still a bit of hello ducky about the whole thing from his point of view he's not entirely he doesn't give me the sense of being entirely 100% comfortable even taking on the role but it's like one of these things he, he wants to he wants to push out a bit like yeah, it's a palate cleanser, I guess, for his career. Like, it's just get away from the disaster. That was the swamp. Come out with this. It's Neil Simon. It's got the this kind of veneer of respectability about it, and he's playing kind of outside the 
I suppose he's outside of his comfort zone. Yeah. Even though, even though, like, I mean, if you take out all the dialogue they have about his bisexuality and him shaking hands with Germain at the Academy Awards, there's, you know, he's playing it completely straight. Yeah. Not intended. There's a slight, there's a slight kind of softening of the accent is all you'd say, but I mean, it's not even, he's not playing, he's not playing a gay man the way, he's not camping it up basically. He's just, he's just playing it. He's, he's playing it as, you know, almost more of an antique dealer, if you want to put it that way, in terms of just his accent is soft and it's soft London and mm. it's fine. Um, so I, he was wary of this, like he he, um, he did the Rolling Stone interview a couple of years ago and he was kind of reflecting back on the amount of gay roles that he actually played after this. And he said, you know, a few people did warn him off of California. So he said, do you really want to do this? You know, people will think you're gay. And he said, no, they won't. They know I'm an actor, which I think is quite was quite a refreshing attitude from him. And, you know, he he um, spoke to Roger Ebert about it when he was filming Escape to Victory. He said, they let me into California suite, but I had to play a gay. So, again, I think he's he's with it. He's with it, but he's kind of slightly wary of this jump, I would say. Yeah, maybe, but I mean, it, as usual, it depends. It depends who he's talking to and when he's talking to them. When he's looking back <laughs> with the wisdom of his years, uh, when in a more accepting era, he could pretend yeah. like he was more enlightened at the time. But in the time itself, he's kind of gone. Oh, no, I don't like any of those, of those gay people at all. It's only acting, lad. Do you know? Do you know sorry, I won't be going to that. I will not go to the saunas, no, lads. No, just, just a handshake. Yeah, that's it. No I'm I'm going to ask you about his performance now. I'm going to just going to tell you what Kane thought of his own performance, right? And this stuff, this a couple of years after, right? So he said, the timing was everything, he said, playing this role, okay? Doing that character was like walking on a razor blade. Very, very difficult and enervating. Uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Go on. Uh, but what do you do with that? I mean, how do you... <laughs> How do you puncture the balloon of pomposity that comes out with that? You know, that, uh, in all fairness, it is literally hit your mark, say the lines to Maggie Smith. She says her lines back. I mean, it's, what? you know, there's, there's, like I said, there is no subtlety here. At one stage, she literally locks him into a closet. <laughs> That's true. She actually does. She does. does so, he I mean, let me out. It's like, I can't remember. Uh, no, it's li- no, he goes out, the, he manages to escape out the other side of the closet. I mean, literally, we're at the. We're at the CGI rat in the departed levels of fucking subtlety here, you know? <laughs> uh, he said, um, Neil Simon came up to him one day during the filming and said, you know, you can really, you can really do my stuff. You know, I've been watching the rushes. And Kane told him the secret, right? This is... Was it, was it like, oh, when I act, I like to pretend that I'm a, a bridge going over troubled waters. And Neil <laughs> said, oh, that's wonderful. I must tell you that. I must tell that to my brother, Paul. Uh, I'm not even going to check the dates, but I'm pretty sure you're about fucking 10 years out there with that one. I'm sure, yeah. Are they related? <laughs> Paul and Neil Simon have no fucking idea. No clue. Um, but he said, they're, they're the original Simon and Simon, yes. They are, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I remember that Private show. detectives, yes. Yeah, private yes. detectives in a pickup truck. Yeah, it was very good. Yes. Cruising around San Diego. Um, the secret, he said, to doing your stuff, you can never stop moving. Now, I took a moment to take that in when I read it, right? And I was going, if I actually went back and put the stopwatch on Kane in this film, he delivers most of his lines, either lying in bed, sitting down at a bar, sitting down at a, a dinner table. That's it. What fucking moving is he doing? <laughs> He's not doing any moving at all. You know, I mean, again, it's bullshit. Oh, it's, it's always brilliant. bullshit. Oh, you got to love him. 
You can't do it standing still. Well, you get, it's like Rob Jones and Marx. That's decades. That's decades. Decades of fucking interviews uh, from entertainment journalists who oh. just want a soundbite and have no interest in challenging him on what it is that he's saying. Isn't he a great man to give them though? Like he seems to reinvent it with the, every decade he reinvents some of this stuff. It's great. You can't do Neil Simon stuff standing still. You did all of it being still, more or less. Oh, that's gracious. I sometimes actually when I make points like these, I feel like I'm going to do far too down the rabbit hole. Like we're just gone we're through the looking glass with Kane. I don't know. I don't know. I know you have to care at some level. Somebody <laughs> talks that about the shit, you know. Uh, what else to be said about our man in this? I think it's striking about his performance. I thought it was. I thought he was good. I thought Maggie Smith was very good. I did think they were the two best things in the film. Yeah, Maggie Smith is was very good, at, um, but Maggie Smith is pretty uh, uh, pretty much excellent. In whatever she's in, he's fine, and he's absolutely fine. They both work well together. Uh, not again onto our our uh, our weekly uh, fat shaming of Michael Caine. He's he's uh, not exactly doing the five mile run every morning with Alan Alda. Anyway, that's for sure. He's that's not exactly sure. uh, uh, he's not exactly bought into that. He's horsing into so, the gins and the guacamole in the film. So I'd say yeah, guacamole. So, so now we also have Sporting Caine. He uh, he he leaps he leaps over an apple that's thrown in his direction by Maggie Smith and it was That's very it. nimble I had to say yeah. why he looked well he looked well one thing that struck me right is in terms of the theatrical element of this right he does seem to like these two handers he likes playing off someone else so like he has Olivier in sleuth you could nearly say Connery in the Man Who Would Be King as as a as a double act. You could nearly say Liz Taylor, I would say, in Z and Company as well. And you could certainly say, you remember all those years ago, the compartment, his first kind of big thing that he did that was taped over by the BBC. That was a two-hander as well. He seems to like taking these roles on. Um, and they kind of, well, I don't know about Z and Co, but certainly the other two suited him. He seems to like this stuff. It depends what the trend at the time is. I mean, like his ensemble cast, he's going, to, he's going to be doing a hell of a lot of that as he go on. He's done his war movies, so he's, you know... But these are stretched across, like, I mean, we're talking, I mean, the, the compartment is 1961, Sleuth, okay, is the 70s, Man Who Be King is the 70s, Ian Coe is the 70s, but, so maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe it is a trend thing in the 70s, but I don't know about that, but I don't know. But anyway, it's just, uh, yeah, I'd just say it can unstrike you, like. <laughs> I suppose it can. I suppose it can, Stephen, I suppose it can. Uh, yeah, she's brilliant. Um, the rest of the film is a bit blech, to be honest with you. Um, made 30 million dollars and got a fucking Jesus. shed load of nominations for stuff mm. Maggie Smith beat Meryl Streep who was in The Deer Hunter that particular year she was nominated Maureen that's Stapleton. fair yeah Maureen Stapleton who was in Interiors Woody Allen movie she beat beat her out as well um, as I say it was Simon's last actually it was his last screenwriting Oscar nominee nomination um yeah, look, it was a thing. I, I can't say it left me feeling one way or the other. It was kind of like just something that happened and then that was it. And I went, yeah, Kane's all right in this. He's good in this. And that was kind of about it, wasn't it? Yeah, I suppose in a fair to get a movie where, you know, Cosby plays a surgeon, which is, I guess, true to life when he likes operating on people where they're unconscious. Well, yeah, there was a horrendous line in the film. Do you remember it? Yes. The, end? Yeah. the ladies are unconscious. They can't hear us. Yeah. Yeah. That didn't play well. That is not the age well, no. No, 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 not at all. It's really, really grim watching those two just fall all over the place. And Walter yeah. Matthau as well. Walter Matthau is trying to hide the fact that he has a prostitute in his bed. The prostitute, by the way, has passed out because she's drank a whole bottle of tequila. But she's passed out in a way that you're going, like, that woman is dead. But yeah, the woman's clearly dead. She's clearly, clearly dead. But um, he does this kind of... 
he's just kind of a weird breathing thing. He's kind of like, it's kind of almost like Looney Tunes. You know that bit in Looney Tunes where the jaw literally drops to the floor? He's, yeah. on, he's actually, actually, he puts his hands in his mouth and it's like he's pulling his jaw down at one stage, kind of hang, 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 kind of stuff. It is really, really awful. Yeah. Really awful. I wouldn't say that, I would say they're worse than the Fonda Alan Alda one, but. Uh. I mean, it's uh, six and a half a dozen of the other, to be honest. Again, this is a movie that managed to make $30 million. I have no we idea have how. no idea how. Yeah, it's, it's just beyond me. I presume it's because I got a bunch of nominations. I, I don't know. I actually, that's one part of this I cannot make sense of. Kane was asked by Neil Simon. So he did three of these. So he did Plaza Suite, he did California Suite, and he ended up writing London Suite in the mid 90s as well. That was his trilogy of kind of hotel plays. Kane was asked to take part in London Suite because Neil Simon was so happy with how, how California Suite worked out. Kane said he wouldn't do the theatre, he'd do the movie though. Which is obviously, why don't you do the theatre? It's going to be far better than any movie they make out of this. Which I, don't I, can tell you, I can tell you why he didn't do the theatre because that would be around, an average of three showings a day for uh, a, a few months. <laughs> yeah. And there's no fucking way he's doing that. That's... And for shit money. That's, that's exactly why he didn't do it. Yeah. One off, big, big fucking check. Bish bosh. Bish bosh, in and out. Jobs are good. Yeah. This is the last movie he makes before he actually moves to LA itself. So it's kind of ironic that Maggie Smith wins an Oscar playing a role where her character does not win an Oscar. And it's kind of, I suppose, not ironic, but the timing is interesting that Kane plays a movie based in LA just before he moves over to his ginormous pad. Uh, that I think we talked about before on Silver Bears. For a guy who was a bit worried about the money, he wasn't afraid to splash it out when it came to the gaff. Um, so after this, he is officially in an LA resident. Uh, and, the, and the movies can only get better from here on. They can only get better from there on. I don't know. Is there anything left to say about this? I have to say, this movie just kind of left I, me. We have milked. We have milked this teeth so much that mastitis has <laughs> started to set in. It just, it just sort of didn't hit the mark for me at all. I did enjoy his performance. So, what would you give him? Marks for Kane for the for the performance rather than the movie? I give him six. Six, yeah. I, as usual, I'd be a mark more generous than you, but I'm not going to argue. A six, like it just, it's it, he's good in it. It's fine. Anything after the swarm is going to be good. So, you know, six. So there we have it. That's 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 California sweet. I mean, to be consigned back from whence it came, that kind of black hole of Kane movies that no one is even hardly aware of, despite the fact that it won all those all those awards and those got those nominations. Next up, he's stabilized, of course, hasn't he? Yeah, right? No, he does what he normally does. He's settled in LA and now he heads off to make another one of those very famous Kane turkeys. This, according to Kane himself, next one, next one up, is the third worst film he's ever made. Next up is A Shanty. This is Dr. Linderby. Not very well, I'm afraid. One of our doctors has been kidnapped. Now, for the crack, number three is A Shanty. Can you give me his top two worst films he ever made? Uh, Jaws uh, 3, The Revenge, I'd imagine is his number one. Um but everything else, it's just fuck. I mean, it's. A, I mean, it depends on how honest he's being with himself. And let's let's be frank, he's probably not. Uh, so, like, I'm trying to think back at the things that I absolutely fucking hated. Uh, God, there's so many. Peeper. Oh, and Har- Oh, Peeper. Oh, Jesus. Peeper was terrible. Yeah, Peeper. Peeper was yeah. terrible. But I'm afraid you're miles off. Uh, yeah. From the Kane perspective, and this was in one of his books. Blowing the bloody door. We've seen now. I mean, I, well, we haven't seen Jaws uh, through the revenge, but no. I'm just going to see. I think the stuff ahead. I could fucking take my big from blaming on Rio or 
This is this is now Kane looking back from like 2018 or 2017. All right. Whenever he was writing the book. Number two is The Megas. Second worst movie he's ever made, he reckons. And the number one movie, worst that he's ever made, according to Michael Caine himself, is The Swarm. So there we go. He's not very exciting choice there for number one, I have to say. And I don't like no, it. You know, the Megas is right. I just think it's the one this is the ones he can remember, to be honest with you. Probably. Like the Megas, the Megas is bad, but Jesus, I don't know. I, I remember we we spoke about this at the end of the 60s. He made worse ones in the 60s than the Megas. Yep, he did. And the Megas is Megas is entertainingly bad. It is um, entertainingly bad, exactly. It absolutely is. You'll be glad to know that we're only two movies away from escaping the 70s. I actually thought at one stage, somewhere around Peeper in the mid-70s, that we'd just live the rest of our lives in this sort of murky, shame spiral of Kane movies in the 70s. Yeah. But I, the 80s are going to be way better. Yeah, it can only, I mean, and the 90s. I mean, let's, let's not ignore the early 90s. Uh, the direct When we had the, the advent of the, what is it, directed DVD market. Oh, yeah. That's that's really grist to his mill, isn't it? Do it quick, get paid way too much for it, and get back out again. That's yeah, that's what's all about for him. I think we are going to wrap this up there. California, yeah. sweet. Thanks, but no thanks. Kane, fine. Look, you're. I wouldn't say you're back on the horse, but if you've got a foot in the stirrup. I fear that foot's about to slip again, though. But we will see. A shanty next time around. Go watch it if you want. I'm sure, it's out there somewhere. Uh, used enough. We're going to get used enough. Used enough. Uh, would he by any chance be playing a, a ethnic minority? <laughs> you, he may well be a man of many voices, languages, oh, and oh, anecdotes. Oh, you just, you just, just, it's like a, a Marcus in uh, uh, Marcus in Indiana Jones: and The Last Crusade, <laughs> Elias character. You won't be able to find him. Used enough. He speaks, he speaks thirteen languages. <laughs> Could disappear into the crowd. <laughs> Peter Ustinov, fucking terrible in everything. Peter Ustinov, he's perfectly good at being Peter Ustinov, but he's, he's, unfortunately Peter Ustinov's a pain in the fucking hole. He's the best Peter Ustinov I have ever seen. He's good in Spartacus, Divinity, and I would say that he would have made a great Marcus in Redders of the Last Hour for what it's worth, actually. I think he would have done that really, really well. But there we go. There we go. We will dive headlong. See, Ustinov knowing the anecdotes, I'm going to be back in another of my wheelhouses. You're going to be so bored. So I, I don't doubt it <laughs> alright thanks for listening come back next time uh, thanks Michael and uh, for bringing the turd mobile into land once again in the plantation of uh, horror that is this podcast as usual don't forget to ignore my plea to like and subscribe our podcast on your platform of choice apparently you can now rate it on Spotify which isn't that marvellous and we will see you next week for Ashanti bye 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 That's it for this week's episode. Thanks for listening. Make sure to like and subscribe. Um, maybe leave a comment. Only nice ones, though. Mean comments will make Alfie cry, and no one wants to see that. The Michael Caine Podcast is written, researched, and presented by Stephen Black and Michael Foley, and edited by Andrew Foley. Music is composed by Stephen Black. If you'd like to get in touch, you'll find us on Twitter at, at Caine 2 And if you enjoyed this episode, you'll find all the rest wherever you get your podcasts. The Mark of Caine is a Mano News 2 Cubes production. See you next time.